why don't we just plug into the, the, the currency markets of the world directly? And that is basically what we're starting to do. We offer the euro as the first currency that we're supporting. I think it was two weeks ago or 10 days ago, we started to offer the sterling, the currency in, in the UK. And we have also issued for nominal amounts, the US dollar. And this is all under the same legal umbrella. This makes it, you know, perfectly legal. That's the coolest part. Form of money. Yeah, I think it's very cool. Yeah. Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. I am your host, Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to another epic episode of The Charlie Shrem Show. Almost six years now, we've been podcasting together some of the best Bitcoin OGs, crypto trailblazers, folks that are building out some of the best technologies, the best companies, those who have been around a long time. It's really cool. We have the best guests. You guys know it. You email me, we meet in person. That's what really differentiates us. We talk to these guests about the topics of the day that are most important. But there are so many cool things that we're talking about before we started recording, and I just wanted to get recording quickly because I'm excited for the guest today. John Eggleston, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. It's an honor. Great to see you. It's an honor to have you because you come and you teach us, and I learned so much, and I tell this to every guest, with the breadth of knowledge of industry you come from. But I just want to dive right into it. You're the ex-chairman of the Icelandic Central Bank, and now you're the co-founder of Monarium. Both topics are super cool. We were talking before on the show if I'd ever been to Iceland. And I've been to Iceland, right? But most Americans have never been to Iceland. It's such a beautiful country. We were also talking about how Iceland was a big part of Bitcoin's experimental history with Aurora coin. It was like an airdrop, I think, in like 2012. It was a big experiment for better and for worse. And it's very important and part of Bitcoiners like myself look back at it as like the first time that a forward thinking country took Bitcoin seriously. Because in 2012 and whatever the year it was, I could barely get bank accounts to even like, you know, keep my account open. You still can't even keep bank accounts open. And now you're launching a company called Monarium. You've launched it that essentially like cuts out the middleman completely from crypto and banking. Like you've com- you've connected a token to a bank account in the most direct way possible. That's completely different from how everyone is doing it right now. Can you actually explain to my listeners what you're doing with that? And, and how it's completely different. Yeah, sure. You mentioned Aurora coin, which is, you know, it links to the whole thing because, you know, what happened during the financial crisis in 2008, all of the banks collapsed. You may have, you may remember, yeah. I was living in New York at the time. And um, it was pretty scary, scary to, to see this because, you know, people didn't have access to their funds in the bank accounts, right? You know, they were basically gone. So, you know, regular people couldn't pay, they couldn't, they couldn't go to the stores and so on. So you suddenly woke up with the experience that you are totally dependent on banks, right? Aurora Coin, as you mentioned, you know, it was a social experiment, basically trying to substitute the local currency with something new. It didn't work, but, you know, it was an experiment. It was very interesting. But what we thought at the time, a little bit later, is that, you know, all the problems that we had after the collapse, we had capital controls. You were not allowed to move money out of the country. So that was also horrifying. Uh, So we basically thought, okay, so can we basically use the technology behind, you know, uh, that underlies Bitcoin? And can we basically issue regular money on that rate? So in that way, you can basically become independent of banks, right? Because you can send money, regular money, to anyone, basically, and you can store it yourself. You can use a custodial wallet. Yeah. So we usually said, you know, if you would have this solution, 
when the collapse happened, you wouldn't have the problems. You wouldn't need to worry about the deposit that you had in a bank because it was in your wallet. And you didn't rely on banks for transactions. So we thought that was a fantastic idea. So basically, one issue that we were uh, grappling with initially was, okay, but it has to be legal, right? Because, you know, fiat money is always a legal thing for any, any nation. So we researched how we could make it legal. And we came up with this solution. It's basically a 24-year-old legislative framework in Europe. It's called e-money. So we, we can, under that um, uh, regulatory framework, we can issue fiat money on-chain and offer it to anyone. We take care of all the, the things, you know, uh, you know, when you have to onboard and so on, but then you basically get a token and, and you can have it in your wallet and, and send it and do whatever you like with it, you see? So that is what we do. We were the first company to get such a license. Last year, the European Parliament basically said, if you want to issue regular money on, on chain as tokens, you have to get this license. So we were very happy, but we already got it in 2019, so yeah. It's not a stable coin. It's like true e-money. Like, how do I yeah. explain to someone the difference? Well, there is, I mean, technically there is, uh, you know, you feel it the same way. It's a token. It's, a, you know, for Ethereum, it's a ERC-20 token. And you keep it in your wallet, you know, MetaMask or whatever. We support different chains. We, you know, it's, it's available on Polygon, Ethereum, and Gnosis, and more to come. So it's just like a stable coin in that sense. But the difference is that it's fully legal. There is no doubt that this is just regular money. We even have uh, had some customers saying that you know they use this to pay, uh, you know, to the, the, the tax authorities in Europe with this. So you know, it's yeah, because it's tied to like an actual IBAN number, as I understand. Yeah, exactly. So basically, you as a customer of Monerim, you get an IBAN number which is just like a regular bank account. And then you basically send the money to that bank account. It's automatically minted uh, onto the blockchain in your address, whatever you want to you know, monitor that address through your wallet or whatever. And then you can send it. And if you want to redeem it, it's you know, under the law, we have to redeem it immediately into your bank account or, or whatever bank account that you prefer. We, we have to then comply with the rules with regards to anti-money laundering issues and so on. So so we take care of all of that. But you as a customer, you're just using tokens, fiat on-chain tokens. As like a former central banker, it's kind of cool to see you talking about these things, but also understanding, you know, you talk about when banks were failing back in 2008. It was the first time as an adult, I was entering the job market with a finance degree and there was no jobs to be had. So I ended up having to start like an internet e-commerce startup selling toothbrushes and and sexual lubricant okay. on the internet. But that's how, and then I found Bitcoin actually through that in 2010 because I was hanging out in just the same chat forums that, you know, people that were trying to find alternative money were hanging out in. And that's where Satoshi was. It's funny because Satoshi wasn't even like a, a, the best developer because when he released the Bitcoin code, it had like some broken peer-to-peer -peer marketplace code. And it also had some code that was like broken poker, poker code. I shouldn't say Satoshi was a brilliant developer, much better than light years ahead of me or anyone else I know. But I, a lot of people I know try to show that Satoshi, when he came, he came to uh, to solicit feedback from people and to to get this thing, you know, launched. And a lot of people like helped him out with that. I wanted to ask you, looking at what El Salvador is doing with Bitcoin and what their volcano bonds, especially, and what Argentina is trying to do. From the eyes of a central banker, can you just like give us some insight? Like, what is going on in these countries? 
why are they adopting Bitcoin in such a positive way? Like what's happening behind the curtain? We have, through history, have seen a lot of countries adopting the dollar, right? Because basically the monetary policy in that country is not working. It's not functioning. Inflation is far too high and trust in the currency has gone and, and all of that. Get rid of this and try to create stability. So um, I think in the end of the day, I think it's for money in general, whether it's regular fiat money issued by governments or, or sovereign states or other kinds of money. I think it's just healthy to have a competition between money. It's good for everyone. We see what happened when Facebook started their project of Libra a few years ago. All the central banks, they basically said, oh, man, we have to do something. This might affect what we are doing. So that They're is, really uh, taking it that of, seriously? Yeah. Wow. You have central bank, CBDC. CBDC is all over the world. And for example, the, the European Central Bank has been experimenting on central bank digital currency for some years. So I think it has basically pushed central banks to try to innovate and try to make it better. And we are seeing very interesting initiatives in Europe. Look at, for example, Bank of England. They are basically, last year in November, I believe it was, they said that, said basically that, you know, England or, or the UK is out of uh, the European Union now after Brexit. And then they basically said, well, we're going to come up with a separate new legislation competing with the Europeans. It's a good thing, yeah. it's competition, right? And then they said, well, we will require what they call significant issuers. That is issuer, you know, that major players in the market. We will require them to safeguard the underlying funds in the central bank. So if, imagine that, Charlie, you know, you have token in a way, and then the underlying assets are, you have a claim on the underlying assets and they're kept in a central bank. I mean, come on, that's, that's more secure than... Yeah, that's the, that's the best you can get. It's a kind of a revolution that is going on. It's not very loud. But it's happening. And this is really, really exciting. It sounds exciting. Um, and I, I, I don't know from a privacy perspective what's going on. But then why, like here in Florida, our governor it was like, if I'm president, I'm going to ban C- CBDCs. Like, why is there so much like populist negativity around it then? So I believe that he was referring to what is called a retail CBDC, which is basically, so you have two types of CBDCs. You have a wholesale and a retail. And if it's a retail CBDC, then you're basically competing with the private market. I don't think that's a good idea. I think you should let the private market just innovate and, and, and all of that. <sighs> but you have the CBDC as a wholesale, which is basically the central bank being supporting those players that you know are regulated and offering the services. But you're offering the security of a central bank behind it. Just like you know, if, you, if you're a private bank today, you are licensed and then you basically interact with the central bank. You have deposit, basically, you, you can place your reserves at the central banks, which gives it extra security, yeah. there, right? There are already banks here in the US that you can deposit both retail banks, that you can deposit both dollar assets and stable coins, but they're still not mainstreamed yet. Like the biggest banks haven't done it yet, but that's definitely a, a future. It's so interesting. And it's very interesting also to view, you know, the US versus Europe. Because you don't have regulatory clarity in the U.S. Unfortunately, it's going to happen. But now, you know, I think it was Janet Yellen yesterday or the day before yesterday. No, it was Tuesday. He was basically asking Congress to come up with regulation for stable coins, right? It could open up the world in a very global way because all of a sudden you can have, like we, we in my VC fund, we invest in teams that are so dispersed all over the world. But if everyone's local bank accounts can hold the same stable coins 
And it's easy to transfer between and like without having to go through the institution. And it just fundamentally changes money and how we perceive money. Yeah. And, and if you think about the globe, see, today you have US dollar denominated stable coins. 99.8% of the stable coins, they are denominated in US dollars. But the yeah. world is much more diverse than that. And if you're in Mexico or if you're in Iceland or, or European countries, then you want to use the local currencies, right? But then it becomes very important to, to make sure that it's easy to go from one country yeah. to another. And that's one of the things that we are really excited about now is that we're basically connecting the Web3 world, shall we say, with the FX market. So you can, so instead of you know relying on pools and you have to, and the pools, they have to be you know deep and liquid and so on. Why don't we just plug into the, the, the currency markets of the world directly? And that is basically what we're starting to do. We offer the euro. As the first currency that we're supporting, I think it was two weeks ago or 10 days ago, we started to offer the sterling, the currency in, in the UK. And we have also issued for nominal amounts, the US dollar. And this is all under the same legal umbrella, which makes it, you know, perfectly legal. That's the coolest part. Form of money. Yeah, I think it's very cool. Yeah. So yesterday, my wife and I went to uh, this like teen court type of thing where it's like if juveniles get get arrested instead of going through like the juvenile courts, which go to juvenile jail. Mm-hmm. There's more of like a like a teenager court. It's actually really cool. It's run by teenagers. Okay. So it, it's run by adults, of course, too. And they're volunteer lawyers that are the judges. And it's all overseen by the criminal justice system, of course. The lawyers that represent the kids are their peers, the same age. The, the, the prosecutor are the peers. And the jury is the peers. These kids are smart. These 13 and 14-year-olds are smarter and brighter and wiser than I ever was at 20 years old. These generations, these younger generations, these kids, these these kids weren't born without cryptocurrency. Like it for them, when they were born now, it exists. It has already existed. When I was in, in school, we didn't even have cell phones yet until I was in high school. And that fundamentally changed everything, right? So I guess the question is, is like, do central banks think about how these younger generations think about money and how they act and how from a socioeconomic perspective, because I don't even know where to start. It's so daunting. Yeah. It's not a natural law that you organize the money system the way we do it. You know, it's not a natural law that we have a fractional reserve system. It is not. And actually there was a debate, you know, more than hundred years ago, it was a very a peer state in the U.S., you know, should we have the fractional reserve system or should we have a full reserve system? And, you know, my kids, you know, they, you know, they have their self-custodial wallet. They get the money there. They store it. They are in control. Why would they need the bank? Just have regular money along with other things that you have in those wallets. You don't need the bank, do you? So the, the concept of the word bank maybe has changed for them. Maybe the services that bank does is, it's different. Yeah. The definition I, needs to change. I, absolutely. I think, you know, banks like any other basically private company, they just have to evolve and develop. I think that is basically what is happening. JP Morgan's really smart. He's JP Morgan this year. He's the only banker building more branches in the last two years because he's realizing, and everyone's like, yeah, Jamie Dimon is stupid. You know, he's against Bitcoin. No, let me tell you personally, I was in JP Morgan's offices working on their blockchain labs in 2012. They're the smartest people. He knew he knew that Bitcoin and crypto were going to be the future. That's why he went on TV always saying that it's not. So everyone thinks he's 
He's been personally me. I could show you t- pictures in their offices working. I could show you emails. Like this is not with fake J- stuff with Jamie? here. With Jamie? No, no, but with their team, with their team that yeah, they that yeah. he hired, like in their offices in Fifth Avenue when yeah. I was a kid, like crazy stuff. Yeah, no, that, that's very interesting because uh, on one side they have been very vocal about you know um, anti. Exactly, anti-Bitcoin, anti-whatever, uh, most things uh, related to blockchain. But on the other hand, they have been leading the way in some sense in this technology and using the technology and offering it to their institutional investors. I think that's why they've been, I think that's why they've been building more branches because they realize that banking services are going to change. And maybe they know or maybe they don't know, but they know that whatever banking services it is going to be, it's going to need to be in person. And that's the future. Like everyone thought like retail was going to change, right? Like how we shopped, but it's the opposite. We shop more retail now because the experience of retail shopping, we like the feeling, the smells, sensory. There's sensory, you know, that's why the Apple Vision Pro is focusing on sensory. I don't know the answer to this. Maybe it's like lending and mortgages. Maybe it's like your future and financial planning. Maybe banks will be very involved in like that. So I don't know the answer, but the old days where you just had these big buildings where you had to use a bank. Like, and if a bank kicked you out, they gave you a check. You had to go to another bank. You didn't have an option. Now you do. Yeah. And one thing, you know, if you just look at what happened in 2023, last year, then we saw we saw just old-fashioned bank runs like Silicon Valley Bank, right? It was just, an, it was like what was happening 100 years ago. And, yeah. and, 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 you know, 100 years ago, then people came up with the solution of, you know, inventing or establishing the, the, the U.S. Fed. But it's still happening. This is an interesting question. Why are banks even publicly traded? Like the banks failed, not because all the depositors kept running, is all the the shareholders were dumping the stock. You're seeing that with New York Community Bank now, Signature Bank, all these banks that were publicly traded. Like, doesn't it make sense that banks shouldn't be publicly traded in the same way? Because that's what was causing these bank runs. Like if the FDIC and our governments are, are backing these banks and our deposits, then we're pretty, you know, or feel secure. I don't know. It just didn't make sense to me. You can also ask, you know, why do we have 20,000, 30,000 people working at the US Fed? What are they doing? <laughs> you know what they're doing? Mostly, it's like, you know, the, the Icelandic central banks, the European central banks, all these central banks. Most of these staff are basically making sure that those private companies, they don't go bankrupt. You see? And that's a really strange setup. You have a private company and then you have public institutions making sure that they will not go bankrupt because if they go bankrupt, we have a problem as a community, right? So there's plenty of room to improve the banking system. And that is what, what happens with this new technology. You're basically unbundling the payment part. You don't need to basically place your money in the bank. So if the bank goes bankrupt, you're not at risk, right? That's the beauty of it. And if the bank goes bankrupt, well, you can still transact and send money. So that's not the problem. So you don't need to have all this public institutions make sure that they won't go bankrupt. They should be treated as any other company because they are highly leveraged. They are just like a hedge fund in a way. In the US, I believe they are they are leveraged something like 10 times. Yeah. So 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 why don't we try to fix that problem? And that is happening, Charlie. That is what is happening and that is what we are working on. It's very scary. Leverage like 10 that that 
it's scary to even like borrow against your house that you own where there's no leverage. You're just like borrowing against your own asset. Like you're talking about, imagine like borrowing against your house 10 times the value of your house. Yeah, that's scary. Like that's, it's just, that's scary. it's so scary to think about. <laughs> like, I, it's not, it's illegal. You can't even do that. How would you do that? You'd borrow money and then go crypto degenerate trading. I just want to end off by saying that the reason that everything is working and that I have a lot of faith in society and civilization in the future is that you're like the perfect example. You're at the central bank and you got the crypto and the Bitcoin bug. Now you're on the other side, taking what you've learned and building the technology of the future. It's that you're the perfect example of what everyone who's listening that isn't working in crypto should be doing. Well, thank you. Very kind of you to say so. But, you know, I really love it. Um, you know, it's really fun to do something which I think matters. I think it matters too to make the financial system more stable. Thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. Kelly, thank you. What's um, your website and your social media so people can follow? It's monarium.com. That's the website. We'll have it in the yeah. show notes. Cool, everyone. Well, thank you. Thank you again for coming. Leave me a review, please, and subscribe to the show. I love you all, and I'll talk to you all later. I love meeting people and they'll be like, oh, I heard that guest on Charlie's show. Oh, like, thank you, Charlie. I'll meet people in real life. It's like the most humbling experience to meet some of the listeners in real life. We have a phenomenal show today. Really special guest, Kevin DePatoul. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Charlie. It's a pleasure. Pleasure to chat today. You're coming to us from, from Belgium where you're based. And we were just saying, that's it's good to know. Actually, a lot of my listeners went to ECC last year. So now it's not going to be in Paris. You were saying it's going to be in Belgium. So that's that should be pretty awesome. Given the, the Olympics are taking place over the summer in Paris, they're going to host it in, uh, in Brussels. This year, it's only uh, you know an hour away by train. Uh, there is a bit of a challenge in Brussels to make sure it's so good this year. They actually, you know, they stay away from Paris for good. Yeah. But we'll see, uh, we'll see how that plays out. I like Brussels. It's such more of a contained city. You can enjoy it a lot better without having to. It's Paris is so big. I want to give a little bit of background about you. You're the co-founder and CEO of Keyrock, a digital asset market maker. Before founding Keyrock in 2017, you worked at Roland Berger, where you spent a few years as a consultant and started investigating and expanding the cryptocurrency market in 2014. You understand crypto and, and financial flows very well. You helped your company through a successful $72 million Series B raise, you know, last year during the bear market when it was very difficult to raise money and do a lot of things. There's a lot to cover. You guys are members of the Tokenized Asset Coalition. I want to tell you something that happened yesterday and we're going to do a great show. And I'm, I'll tell you, like, I was like so excited of what happened yesterday when real life things happen and then I get to use them in a podcast. I'm, I have a VC fund that we started. We're making our 16th or 17th investment now in the last year and a half. And we have our whole team, our strategist investment committee. And we frequently call on a bunch of our limited partners and our general partners for advice and thoughts and things like that. Sometimes the meetings end up falling into like convincing this one guy that assets should be brought on chain. And the conversation comes down to real world assets all the time. And it always comes down to like, Charlie, I don't understand. Why would people put assets on chain? And then I went to do 
some research about you guys before the show. And not only are you guys part of this asset coalition of, of people who want to bring all assets on chain, but there's a phenomenal app that you guys have here too that shows there's almost over $600 million in active real world assets being brought on chain. There's also so much research that you guys put out one of my favorite things is how my therapist explained to me my ADHD when she was saying how it's like a spectrum. You know, we're not not all the same, but you guys explained tokenization as a spectrum. Can we start there? What would you say to this person? Like, there, there's so many different types of assets that can be brought on chain from real estate, but why? And you guys as market makers, why is it more yeah. efficient to make these markets than to be in traditional Wall Street and make those markets? I think what's interesting here is that it, it very much also ties back to what made me and my co-founder start Kiwak uh, initially back in, in 2017. Uh, as you mentioned, I was working at Roland Berger and uh, started to be interested in crypto digital assets in 2014. So everything started to, to, to blow up and, you know, you had this, this big ICO craze yeah. in 2016, 2017. And basically, we're wondering, like, why? why? Why are those so popular, right? When you look at ICOs, what they were back then... It was kind of a glorified Kickstarter campaign to some extent, right? Here is a token of a network and a network of product I intend to build by my token. Eventually, it will be used. So there was some some kind of crowdfunding. But then the question is, why are those getting so much more traction than um, a crowdfunding would? We came to the conclusion that one of the one of the reasons that instead of just having, I guess, a Kickstarter coupon that you could do nothing with, just redeem, you know, when the product eventually goes live, you end up with a token that you that you can trade. And so yeah. the thing that we liked about putting assets on chain and tokenizing, digitizing those assets, and in this case, you know, uh, you know a, a crowdsourcing campaign is that all other things being equal, the assets that you own all of a sudden is a lot easier to exchange. It is a lot easier to, to trade, to send around everywhere, you know, everywhere in the world, 24-7, lower cost, lower, lower fees, you name it. So you end up with, again, the big part here is all other things being equal, right? So this is not about, you know, regulatory arbitrage or, or whatever, purely like you have an asset that is just easier to trade and to exchange, to send around. And so when you apply that logic, you know, it, it held back in 2017 when we were looking at yeah. uh, initial ICOs. I do think it, it holds in a much broader spectrum today when you look at, you know, all different types of assets. You, you make them easier to trade, easier to exchange. You give them a lot more, you know, potential liquidity. And that is what makes you know this, this act of tokenizing, digitizing kind of uh, interesting in the first place. What do market makers do? You guys have been around for a long time. I've worked with so many of, of your competitors, but your company is almost seen as plumbing, as railway, as infrastructure for the back end of, of liquidity and trading and, and how pricing works. And you almost yeah. also almost like are working together to grow that larger pie. So it's like almost a friendly thing. But yeah, yeah tell, tell my listeners, please, like what you guys do. Sure. I mean... As market makers, our purpose is to provide liquidity to the market. So liquidity is your ability to exchange you know, an asset at any given time uh, for cash, seeing how fast you can do it and without having too much of a, of, of a price impact, right? So your ability to exchange an asset for cash, basically that means you are, you are a seller and you need to meet a buyer that is happy to do the opposite side of the trade, right? Then you have a liquid asset when supply and demand constantly meet and you know are close enough at all times to actually meet and have have trades have exchanges the reality is that it, it only rarely happens that you know the uh, a buyer and a seller come on the market at the exact same time to do you know the exact opposite transaction at the same price and so market makers what we do is that we're a bridge so when when the buyer 
is looking to buy, we're there to sell. When a seller is looking to sell, we are there to buy. And we're basically there to bridge the gap between buyers and sellers at all times so that transaction can take place. So we are market makers. We are always there giving a price for both you know, the buy and the sell side and making sure that the market is as efficient as can be. So we really have a role as a the bridge you know, on all these markets between buyers and sellers to make transactions as easy and seamless as possible, basically. One of the reasons our industry has matured in 2024 now, especially going from like the ICO days, and the fact that one of our reasons that the industry still exists from a trading perspective is because of market makers. And in fact, you know this because if you have a token and you want to get listed on an exchange, most exchanges won't list you unless you're coming with a market maker and a reputable one. Why, why mm -hmm. is that? I mean, if you look at it from um, an, ex an exchange perspective, right? Exchanges, if you, you take the retail side of things, so exchanges are going to attract, try to attract you know, retail investors, retail traders, right, on a certain market. They're going to make some you know, marketing expenses, uh, onboarding expenses to make sure that the clients you know, get started, is there uh, on the exchange, has a, a, an account set up, potentially pre-funded, pre you know, if it's a central exchange, and then that trader is going to want to do his or her first trade. Yeah. And they go on the market the, you know, from the token that they want to buy, but when they actually you know, go on that market, everything is ready, but nobody's willing to sell. So that trader is not going to come back, right? So most likely, or if, if it does, it's going to take significant, you know, um, yeah. I guess, convincing and therefore cost for the exchange. So it is in the interest of the exchange to make sure that from day one of a token being listed, there are counterparties in the book that are willing to both buy and sell and do so as reasonable prices. And that is exactly the purpose that, a, that the market maker serves. So when a token gets listed and does so, you know, immediately with the support of a market maker, the token, the exchange, sorry, has a the certainty that when their clients go on that specific market to trade, there will always be a, a counterparty willing to do the opposite trade in the, you know, in the market maker. And this is why they are crucial for, for tokens to be listed. One of the biggest issues back then was that the, I guess, market makers weren't as well-developed or integrated with the, the, the back end of like how everything is traded. And also back then, there were almost no decentralized exchanges, which now is mm -hmm. like a huge amount of volume in just how exchanges all work together. Like it completely changed. Do you see like this whole multi-chain world playing out? It's, it's interesting that now so many projects and companies, like when you said the word bridge, they're trying from like a decentralized exchange perspective to build bridges back into all the chains working together in lockstep. Yeah, so I do think this is, you know, it's it's both, I guess, positive, but also challenging from yeah. the from a perspective of of liquidity, right? Because Bitcoin would be potentially more liquid or more accessible in liquid if it was only traded in in one place, because all the liquidity in the world would be pulled into you know one market, and so you don't have a liquidity that is fragmented. You have a, a liquidity that is centralized. But the problem with that is that the people that don't have access to that one liquidity pool cannot contribute to it. So the fact that, you know, when you have fragmentation, you have an inherent problem of liquidity that yeah, it's, it's fragmented. So you need to have multiple access to multiple markets in order to have access to the liquidity. But then you have wider distribution, which, you know, at the end is positive. So when I look at this multiplication of chains type of, of type yeah. of venues, from the perspective of a market maker, I think that it has a very positive impact in terms of distribution because there is more options for everybody to find what suits them in order to transact and to exchange value. And that is, that is a positive thing because it does, you know, overall add more liquidity to the asset space, to the, uh, to the asset class to some extent. But it does also create challenges because we need to build bridges between all those to somewhat do our price discovery in multiple venues, multiple different types of, of exchanges. And that, of course, is, is okay. complicated, especially in, a, in an industry that, that develops and changes as fast as ours, basically. 
Is there a technology solution to that problem that that you're looking I mean, at that you guys are potentially investing in I mean, or or looking is at? Is there one? No, yeah. like uh, there's not currently one technology solution to that problem. Like it is, we do consider this to be part of our of our role. Like uh, a big chunk of of our work as market makers is price discovery, making sure that you know we price asset properly. The only way for us to do this is to have access to all the venues where these assets are traded, right? So that we we can incorporate all, all the information that is out there in in the price that we provide or or counterparties and that we provide on the books on which we trade. So we do play a role as a as a bridge, not only within a given market between the buyer and the seller, but also in you know aggregating price information across multiple markets and across multiple different markets. I want to go back to to real world assets for a second. So from a U.S. perspective, is the largest hindrance to getting like mainstream users or the the largest hindrance for companies to launch more revenue sharing tokens and debt tokens and things like that is the largest problem right now, the like accredited investor rule in the US, because that precludes like most of the population from being involved in these type of things. So is it a large hindrance? Definitely. I think that, you know, having additional hurdles that, you know, may or may not be warranted depending on your individual cases, but having those additional hurdles to investment, to access to capital market, it is clearly a, a hindrance. Is it the main one? I don't think so, because even if you would change that rule, not all assets would be immediately, you know, tokenized tomorrow. I think there are lots of mm. other challenges that, you know, this that makes this trend of real real world assets and everything on chain, even thing that was, you know, put forward by by Larry Fink, it's more of a five to ten years kind of a scenario than a, than a, than a one to three years because the regulatory clarity, who can access, who can build, you know, these solution is part of the problem. But there's, you know, even if everybody could do it and everything was clear from a regulatory perspective, there are things there are still a, a lot of infrastructure and plumbing to be built before this, this can actually function because at the end of the day, the purpose is to replace a financial market that took, you know, hundreds of years to build itself. So there, there is quite a bit of work before we have, you know, all assets seamlessly tokenized and easily exchangeable, both, you know, centrally and decentrally, basically. Can I ask a question that I may think is stupid? And as part of because I was reading an article this morning that so much money is leaving China for India. The article was talking about how basically the government of India just spent so much money in the last 10 years building out financial infrastructure and financial plumbing. And I know that we're yeah. rebuilding that on, but I don't like to use like buzzword. Like, what does that actually mean? We're talking about lending. We're talking about like price discovery. What does that mean when a country or in our case, like our industry, we're building out better financial infrastructure? I understand that we need to connect everything together. It means many different things, like the financial infrastructure, the financial plumbing. Let's take a very, a very simple example, like in in Europe, which is you know the scope that I, that I know. You have you take a security, you you make it digital. Who can custody it? Just that. Who can keep that wow. asset safe? Like in the case of who can do it? Like legally, this is something that was not clear. You know, even like I think in some countries still isn't clear. But that's like the very basic because you have an asset that legally is not recognized as a regulated instrument anymore, therefore cannot be custodied by you know, accredited custodians, which means that it cannot participate in the market as a whole. So just the very basic, like who can actually custody the asset, that is something that needs to be clarified. And in this case, it's a mix of plumbing, so to speak, and actual you know, regulatory clarity, but those things are not there yet. I never thought about it like that. How is the financial instrument considered? How is it defined? Like As soon as you tokenize it, then you can do you know, instant clearing and settlement you can do self-custody, that completely changes the legal frameworks or in which you know, traditional instruments are actually considered. So all of this has to be 
rethought basically before it can actually happen. So uh, someone goes out in the traditional world, they have a million dollar mortgage. That mortgage company, it says on your mortgage, like this is a security instrument. That company then yeah. takes those mortgages and goes to like a wholesaler and can sell those mortgages. It's a security instrument. In the US, that infrastructure exists and it's very built out. So when there's articles talking about rebuilding infrastructure, it's talking about like th things like that, where investors can go and buy mortgages or they can go and, and build out different like mechanisms. I'm starting to understand it. And I think I understand like the custody of it because that is a huge part of it. There are very few places that custody assets. And even if you're doing like physical assets now, real estate's one thing, but then like, you're right, like treasuries and bonds, like who are these companies? If you go to the real world asset coalition here, there's there's 110 upcoming protocols being built to do this. Yeah. That's 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 insane. Like that's this seems like almost almost a, a crowded market at this point. Do you think there's so I much? Mean, I have to digest all this. There's so much what, data what, in here. I mean, a crowded market. But what are the actual solutions that are, you know, live have some traction, have you know actual like use and trading volume? It is a crowded market, but we still, I think, to some extent, there's only at, eight at of the early them. stage of, of the entire thing. So I think there there is a need for a lot of of contenders and change makers to actually eventually make it happen because you know we always what is interesting to me when so I've been active six yeah more than six years now full time you know with Kirok so it was end of 2017 when we always compare blockchain and what it does to value uh, potentially as you know what the internet did to the exchange of information right to kind of you know summarize but it's kind of, it's kind of an easy comparison to make right but the reality is that what what you're trying to disrupt here value is tremendously more regulated than just information. Yeah. So the, the time it takes to make those changes is just a lot higher because it has a, a much more, to some extent, vital impact on people. And there's a good reason for value exchange to be to be regulated and protected. I mean, the purpose initially is to protect retail investors. Is that always done? You know, that's a, that's a different debate. Like, the, do the, the actual regulation kind of meet their goals? It's an entirely different debate, but that's why they are there in the first place. And so changing this, when you touch that, at something that is as vital as you know people's livelihood and you know savings and 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 value, it takes a lot of time to to change and yeah. to to kind of you know modify the rules because again those rules were built on you know uh, hundreds of years where we did not have the technology that we have now. So there needed to be lots of those intermediaries to create create trust because technology itself was not able to do it, and so it takes time to change. So that logic of you know easy comparison of blockchain is going to do to value what the internet did to. To, to yeah. data, is that going to happen? I do think so, but I do think also that it's going to take you know, more time because the task at hand is, I think, a lot more complex. And in that regard, it's very good that there are many, many people you know, working on the, on the challenge and working on, on solving those challenges and working on the topic because it's, it's a hard thing to do, basically. Thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for, thanks for having me taught us a lot today. I can't wait to edit this and send it to my fun partner. And there's so much, there's so much here. Like I have to digest. We've invested in a couple of companies that are doing on-chain finance, but there's so much that I didn't know on this website that you guys put together. I really implore my listeners to check this website out, rwa.xyz. It just lists, you can see all the private credit. There's, there's $600 million in active loans tokenized active loans and private credit. There's almost $900 million in tokenized treasuries. It's just unbelievable that it's not even including real estate yeah. and such. And also check out your website. It's keyrock.eu. Everyone follow their Twitter, Keyrock Trading, because 
It's a lot to learn. If a person who's not in crypto is coming over to me and saying, Charlie, like, what's the next big wave of what's going to make crypto be something I'm talking at the dinner table on a holiday? Is this. This is what's yeah. happening the future. We've proven, like you said, the past couple of years were an experiment of tokens. But you're right. We don't want a receipt anymore. We want that token, yeah. that some, that smart receipt, if you will. Something you could do you know, with the, it. The, I guess two things on you know the numbers that you cite. What is interesting, fascinating actually, is that they are both, you know, uh, in absolute, they're big. But compared to what they could be, they are absolutely tiny still. Nothing. So we still, yeah. you know, it's very, 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 very st early stage. The second part is, you know, what is going to be the next big wave in crypto, for me, it's even broader than that, is what, what is the point? Like, what is the point of crypto? When I look at what crypto is today, lots of people talk about crypto as one asset class, right? I really don't think it's an asset class. I think what we refer to as crypto is basically the first, the first use cases, you know, the, the real innovators of how can you represent, represent value fully digitally. And we, you know, cryptos are all the, the first the, the real kind of cutting edge innovation, like, look, this is how we can represent value digitally. And that value can be, you know, digital gold for some in the case of, of Bitcoin. It can be NFTs. It can be domain names with ENA. It can be whatever, right? But this is digitally, fully digitally represented value. And this is why the technology as a whole is interesting because then you can think, yeah, but wait, if I can represent, you know, ownership of domain names and arts and digital gold, what else can be fully digitally represented and benefit from the same advantages in terms of efficiency, speed, and cost. And actually, it's everything, basically. Yeah. And so when you say it's the next big wave, I think it is the next big wave, but just simply because it is, it is simply the continuation of what, you know, the, the kind of first use cases and proof of concept that, that crypto is today and just kind of taking that further to, you know, to production scale and kind of industrial scale, so to speak. And we can represent value fully digitally today. Here is the proof. Crypto is proving it for the last, you know, 10 years. You apply that, that concept to the rest, and that is just tremendously transformational. And so it's definitely, you know, it's the next, next big wave, yes, and definitely something I'm, I'm super excited about. For you, it sounds like this is why crypto exists. I mean, that's why I'm working in it, for sure. I love that. That's because I think that's why it makes sense. I will see you in Brussels. I can't wait. Cool. Definitely, definitely let me know. You'll be most, most welcome here. Uh, and yeah, ETC is going to be a is going to be a, a cool event. But if you have other reasons to be in Brussels, do come as well. It's a, yeah, it's, a, fun it's a good city. time. All right. Well, thanks for listeners and everyone. Thanks for coming on the show today, and I appreciate everyone's time. And I can't wait to uh, see what's in store for us this next coming year. See you later. Thank you very much, Charlie. Have a nice day.